Hey, everybody. It is Friday, December 2nd. We have made it till the end of another week. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts and a little bit of fun. Oh, I like that. That's a new one. That's a new one. We're changing the tagline every day. Let us know how you feel about that, especially on this Friday. Uh, And we read the news so you don't have to. Um, Jill, we're recording slightly earlier on this Thursday ahead of Friday because apparently 23 Cornelia Street, who you might know, you might know that address as a Taylor Swift fan, uh, is open now for like special events. And uh, Alex and I have been invited to an event there this evening. That is awesome. Tell me how it is. It's hard to get a ticket. You're so big time, Mosh. Oh, Jill. (laughs) And you said to me, you're like, I could probably get you a ticket. And it's weird because I love Taylor Swift. Anybody who follows me on Instagram knows that I just shared my Spotify most streamed songs. And Mm -hmm. basically, it's all Taylor Swift. But I don't love knowing a lot about um, the personal lives of, of celebrities that I like or musicians. I usually wind up not liking them. You know, so I just kind of like the the opposite of. Everybody, like, I mean, that's kind of what TMZ, Us Weekly, all of them are predicated on knowing more about the celebrity personal life. Yes. I like yeah. to know as little as possible about musicians, about, I don't know, except maybe Bruce Springsteen, who I absolutely love. Everyone mm-hmm. else, it's just like, you know what? I, I'll appreciate your music or your art or your movies or whatever. Are it you is. scared? Are you scared of like their personal details ruining their art? For you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, for especially music, I really internalize it. And I, for me, songs are synonymous with certain times in my life and make mm-hmm. me feel a certain way. I don't totally need to know the backstory of why the musicians made a song about whatever. Um, I, I don't know. I prefer to just appreciate the art for the art and not know as much about them because uh, it's usually disappointing. All right, folks, there you go. The more you know. <laughs> Another Jill, hot sharing. take by Jill Wagner, yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, now to some headlines. How low can we go? We are talking about gas prices, which continue to fall, but for how long? The White House hosts Emmanuel Macron for the first state visit of Biden's presidency. China lifts some of its zero COVID policies. We're going to talk about those comments from two women prime ministers that have gone viral, calling out media misogyny. And it is Friday. That means we're going to talk about what we are watching, reading, and eating this weekend. I think we got some fun stuff in this podcast, Jill. I agree. So let's do it. Let's start with a status update on the economy and inflation. And because it is Friday, we want to kick this off with some good news. Gas prices have now fallen back below where they were in February before the war in Ukraine started. AAA is the national average at about $3.50 a gallon. And Gas Buddy, which also tracks gas prices, says that we could see $3 a gallon gas by Christmas. And that is real money in people's pockets. And it is one of the reasons that we saw inflation slow down a bit. Some new numbers from the Commerce Department show that overall prices rose 6% in October from the year before which is the smallest increase since the end of last year. It is still at an elevated level. The goal is to bring inflation down to 2% annually, but perhaps a sign that inflation is finally leveling off. Well, those gas prices are going to be helpful uh, because, uh, you know, instead of spending 100 bucks to fill your tank, you're spending closer to 50 or 60 bucks. Uh, remember back in June when it eclipsed $5 uh, for the first time. So these, uh, the gas prices coming down is a good sign. The big question, Jill, per what you were just saying about inflation is, what does that mean for what the Federal Reserve does when it meets later this month? So at an event earlier this week, the Fed chair 
Jerome Powell, uh, said, quote, the time for moderating the pace of rate increases may come as soon as the next meeting. Translation, on December 14th, uh, just over a week from now, uh, the Fed will likely still increase interest rates, but not as aggressively as before. So the Fed has been receiving a lot of criticism for being late to start to deal with inflation. You know, the whole idea last year that it was just going to be transitory, that it wasn't a real thing. So then the Fed was playing catch up with all these rate increases. Well, business leaders of late have been saying, guys, you're increasing rates way too much. You're making up for not addressing them long, uh, you know, a while ago. You need to slow things down and see uh, how things go because these rate increases have had a huge impact on the economy. We haven't even seen the full impact. It has led to a lot of economists and others saying you are guaranteeing recession now because you're trying to bring down inflation. So as a reminder here, when the Fed increases interest rates, that's their way of trying to slow down the economy. You make it harder to, for people to get money, harder for businesses to get loans. So you slow down uh, the rate of growth. You slow down prices. Well, the goal is to do that without setting us into a recession. But unfortunately, the feeling pretty much across the board now is we will see some sort of recession in 2023. Jill, yesterday on the podcast, we were talking about that deal book conference where they had a bunch of notable people. Among them was Larry Fink, a uh, key business leader who runs BlackRock, which controls trillions of dollars, and Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary. Uh, both think we will get back to 3 to 4% inflation over the next year or two. They are confident uh, on that front. But uh, there'll be a lot of uh, compelling economic numbers to watch in these next couple of weeks, which will give us a better sense of 2023. And Mosh, we talked about this a lot, but the economy is just weird right now because we're in this recession waiting game, as you just mentioned, the Fed hiking interest rates, the housing market is finally slowing down, and yet the job market is still so strong. We're going to get the November jobs report a bit later this morning, so depending on when you listen to this podcast, those numbers may already be out. Also, consumers are still spending money even if it means dipping into their savings to do so. And that is huge because consumer spending makes up about two-thirds of the U.S. economy. Yeah, let's take a look at some of those numbers. It was actually a record-breaking five-day holiday weekend. From Thanksgiving through Cyber Monday, consumers, American consumers, spent just over $35 billion, according to Adobe Analytics. On Cyber Monday alone, which was the biggest shopping day of the long weekend, uh, sales hit $11 billion, which is a 5% jump from last year. The important caveat here is that the numbers are not adjusted for inflation. So one analyst was telling the Washington Post, if inflation is up 8%, sales are up 5%, people are buying less, you know, because again, the prices are higher. So given the price increases we saw in a number of items, even though sales are up, they might not have matched last year. So it's hard to get a definite read here, but people were still spending. Uh, they did list out uh, what some people were buying, some of the hot sellers. Amazon put out numbers on this. They saw record numbers. They said among the most popular products, Apple AirPods, Amazon devices like the Echo Dot Smart, a speaker, and the Fire Stick. A couple other things that were apparently hot, Champion Apparel, the Nintendo Switch consoles, and Hasbro Gaming Connect 4, Jill. Did you get any of that? I didn't, um, but the Champion Apparel, is it kind of makes me laugh a little just because it's so retro. I feel like that's yeah. what I was wearing in elementary school. So you do the math at how old I am. Everything comes back again. Yeah, that was big. I remember Champion. I feel like they were a sponsor of like one of the Dream Team uniforms back <laughs> right, in right. when like Jordan and Magic and Larry were playing back there in the early 90s. Moving on, a bit of a reset when it comes to French and U.S. relations. It is Friday, Mosh, so let's start with the fun stuff here. The state dinner 
French President Emmanuel Macron and his wife were the honored guests last night for the first state dinner since President Biden took office. As the New York Times puts it, quote, it marks a return of the diplomatic pomp that was largely on hold during the pandemic. So First Lady Jill Biden did most of the planning. She says that it is inspired by the shared colors of our flags. So this means that the tables had red roses and blue delphiniums alongside white irises, which is the official flower of France. There were French-made wine glasses. The leaders toasted with American-made wine, and there was an image of the Statue of Liberty, which was a gift from France, um, as the backdrop. The Macrones were also treated to an American cheese course, including the Oregon-based Rogue River Blue, which was the winner of the 2019 to 2020 World Cheese Awards. Jill, until today, I didn't know there were World Cheese Awards. I feel like there's an award for everything. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there were more than 300 guests at the dinner, but most dare I ask, and I am not trying to hate on American cheese or American wine. But wouldn't it have been a nice gesture to have at least served some French wine and French cheese, given that that's what they're known for? There's a whole tradition here, uh, Jill, that goes back for state dinners uh, that you you know want to showcase that you pay homage to the foreign leader, but you want to showcase uh, American, uh, the best of America at these state dinners. Uh, I was working at CBS News for many years, uh, and there's a famous correspondent named Bill Plant who actually, unfortunately, just passed away recently. And he was a wine aficionado. And during the Reagan White House, he was the CBS correspondent. But given how much he knew about wine, they would have him go down to the wine cellar to choose specific California wines. Ronald Reagan was uh, from California uh, to showcase uh, and serve world leaders. So, uh, you know, always a, a fascinating thing. And I've also been receiving a lot of DMs, Wait, Joe. that's so interesting. They don't have a sommelier there? They, they, they do, but they respected Bill Plant's opinion they regard his opinion so well that they would have him consult on what wine to choose for state dinners. Uh, that back is at, awesome. Back in the Reagan the, White House. Oh my gosh, he must have been so fascinating to talk to. Fascinating to talk to. You always let him. You always let him do the wine order whenever you went out to dinner with him. Jill, I should also say that the good people of Oregon, I've, I've heard from several of you in my DMs who are very proud of your Rogue River Blue Cheese, which I definitely need to check out. As a as a Chicagoan originally. I've always known our uh, border state, Wisconsin, as the uh, home of uh, great cheeses. But I, I didn't know much about Oregon cheese. I need to look further into it. Uh, Jill, a couple other notable things from this dinner. John Batiste, the Grammy-winning musician, who you might know from the Colbert Late Show, uh, performed with the U.S. Marine Band. Uh, why him? Jill Biden says Batiste was chosen because he grew up in New Orleans, which obviously has been shaped by French and American culture. They actually still use the Napoleonic Code as their set of laws in Louisiana uh, versus uh, most other states. There's a lot of French traditions down there. One interesting thing that the uh, two first ladies share in common, Brigitte Macron was a former French literature and theater teacher. Jill Biden, of course, continues to teach English and writing at a Virginia community college. So uh, two teachers here. But this is my favorite fun fact, Jill. The Macron love story. Uh, many people might know this. Many people might know that there is a major age difference between Brigitte and Emmanuel Macron. She is 25 years older than him. She is 69. He is 44. What many people might not know is they met when he was in high school and she was the drama teacher. This is back in 94. Macron's pretty young. He's only 44 years old. So he's in high school in the 90s. He's 15 years old. She's 40. She's married at the time. His parents were so concerned about this, like, affection he had for his drama teacher, they actually, to avoid scandal, packed him up 
and made him finish his last year of high school in Paris, about two hours away from their hometown. The separation, though, only intensified the passion between a 16-year-old Macron and Brigitte, then 41. Again, she's married at the time. They continue this love affair for another plus decade. She finally gets divorced in 2006. They got married in 07 when he was 29 and she was 54. I'm sweet. I'm I'm actually speechless. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't know that story. That is wild. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. It, it came up, I think, when Trump visited Macron for a state visit a few years ago in France. And I think they have a similar age gap as in Donald Trump is about 20 something years older than Melania. And Emmanuel is 25 years younger than Brigitte. So I didn't know about this. And I dug into it because I was fascinated by this backstory. It is a wild story, Moshe, but also like hashtag France, right? That feels very French. <laughs> they're much more open about these things. Affection, love, amour. You know, they're, they're cool with love any way you find it. But apparently Emmanuel's parents were not very cool with it. But this is just true love story, these two. All right, now let's get to the serious stuff with these two. Uh, the U.S.-France relationship has been a little bit rocky recently. If you remember, a little over a year ago, Biden reached a deal to help Australia deploy nuclear-powered submarines. The thinking was that this would help take on China if need be, but it wound up ticking off France because the French had this massive contract to provide conventional submarines to Australia, and the whole ordeal actually prompted Macron to recall his ambassador on Thursday at this press conference, though, they put on a very united front with a couple of exceptions. Yeah, for the most part, uh, they played very well together. There is a big difference right now between the U.S. and France over uh, pr our protectionist policies, they feel. Uh, the French president has uh, been particularly concerned about the tax incentives we've passed here in the U.S. related to clean energy Related to the Inflation Reduction Act, it's a move that European leaders fear could cause sectors in their own economies to shift operations to the U.S. So this is, you know, trade wars. Uh, so that continues between us and uh, the French, as well as the rest of Europe, as we're all dealing with uh, sky high inflation. The other big issue that the two leaders have been addressing is the war in Ukraine. Uh, they've put on a pretty united front there. But right now, the European countries are feeling much more pressure from energy issues, etc., cetera, uh, and price increases related to the war in Ukraine. Uh, Macron, of course, before the war was trying to prevent Putin, he failed, uh, from invading uh, Ukraine. And there have been various times where uh, both Macron and Biden, through emissaries, have been trying to get Zelensky to maybe consider some peace talks here. But for the most part, the two of them now officially are saying that they stand with Kyiv as long as it takes to repel the Russian invasion. All right, Jill, we have a lot more news to get to in this podcast. But first, I want to thank our sponsor this week, the betting and sheep brand Bull & Branch. That is Bull, B-O-L-L. -L. They are extending their special deal for Mo News listeners through this weekend. Uh, they took notice last month on our Instagram uh, news discussion about whether to use a top sheet, whether you don't use a top sheet, uh, whether it's still hip. All the various things we were sharing in that in that Instagram debate heard around the world. And so Bull & Branch is offering all Mo News listeners 25% off plus free shipping for a limited time with the promo code MONEWS. If you're looking for a gift for yourself or a loved one this holiday season, remember that all of us spend about a third of our lives in bed. Some of us 
more hours than others, depending on uh, what point in life you are at. But no matter what, sheets are a very big deal. My wife and I, Alex, got a set of white sheets uh, from Bolin Branch. Uh, they've been incredible. They get softer with every wash. I think we're looking at getting another set right now. So as you do your holiday shopping, this is the opportunity to give the gift of a better night's sleep to everyone on your holiday list. The deal, again, from Bolin Branch is 25% off site-wide, plus free shipping when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. I have a link in the show notes. That is bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. Promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S. The offer ends on Sunday, December 4th. Everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there. Noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do. But you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl and Branch. We have Bowl and Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Moshe and I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They're completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl & Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, 1-5% off your order. Time now for the speed read from the BBC. China has signaled a shift in its COVID stance as it moves to ease some virus restrictions despite high daily case numbers. Restrictions in major cities like Guangzhou were abruptly lifted on Wednesday, hours after the city saw violent protests that resulted in clashes between police and protesters. A community in the capital of Beijing also allowed COVID cases with mild symptoms to isolate at home. That's according to a Reuters report, which is a far cry from protocols earlier this year, which saw entire buildings and communities locked down, sometimes as a result of just one positive case. It was wild, Jill, what the uh, Chinese people have been experiencing. By the way, officially, everybody, we are now in the fourth year of the pandemic. Yesterday marked three years since the first official case in Wuhan, if you can believe it. Uh, this is a big deal, Jill, if the Chinese are serious here. Because when protesters rallied in a dozen cities over the past weekend, fueled by these strict lockdowns continuing, the authorities in Beijing initially responded with security measures focused on rounding up protesters, deterring others from taking part in the gatherings. But if this headline is any indication, the Chinese Communist Party is now signaling a willingness to address the root cause of the public anger. These intrusive pandemic controls that have stifled economic growth, left millions of people confined to their homes, sometimes for months on end. It's effectively an admission here that they might have been wrong about zero COVID. But you're not going to hear the Chinese government say that. Uh, apparently, they have a vice premier who oversees COVID measures. Uh, their name is Sun Chanlin. Uh, they were speaking on Thursday. And for the second time in two days, 
they said that the country was entering a new phase in its campaign against the virus. After three years of fighting COVID, our medical and disease control system has met the challenge. The public sense of health has increased significantly. Effectively, they're like, let's just declare victory on this and move on. It is unclear how far Xi Jinping, the overall leader, is willing to go. He's been the chief enforcer of zero COVID. But this is an interesting uh, decision here by the Chinese. And you see various governments, when they see protests, go different directions, right? In Iran, different issues, but people in the streets, they've doubled down, right? The government's arresting people is not relenting on anything. Here in China, they saw some protests. We've obviously seen, seen these images get out. And the Chinese here appear, based on these Reuters headlines on Thursday, to be relenting on some of these controls, effectively not doubling down. I mean, they have arrested some people, et cetera, but you know, they might be using this as an excuse to move on. It is going to be interesting to see what happens when things open back up again, if this virus starts to really spread out of control, if they're going to have to take these measures again. Because as we discussed, there's not a lot of natural immunity and not a lot of uh, vaccine usage, especially among the older population that's very vulnerable. Totally. And there are huge uh, global implications here. We began the podcast by telling you gas prices are down. If China totally opens up, they're going to be demanding oil. They're the largest consumer of oil in the world. So gas prices will go back up again. So just know that everything China does, there's domino effects. And uh, basically, every time China shuts down, bad for Chinese people, slightly better for gas prices. I mean, there's huge implications here. I'm oversimplifying things, but Jill, but every, this is why we report on China so much on this podcast is all these moves have huge implications for those of us here at home. From CBS News, former President Obama heads to Georgia as Raphael Warnock tries to maximize early vote advantage over Herschel Walker in the Georgia Senate runoff. Georgia voters have already cast more than a million ballots ahead of the December 6th Senate runoff. The former president will be campaigning with Warnock on the eve of the final day of early voting. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Biden's probably not going to be there. It doesn't appear that Trump will be going there, but the former president that will be there is Obama. He tends to really do a great job of rallying the Democratic base, including African-American voters. Uh, Keep in mind, every vote matters here. Uh, In the initial general election, Warnock led uh, Walker by about 37,000 votes out of 4 million casts. You know, these races in Georgia for a couple of years now have been very, very close. Uh, it'll be interesting to see who can churn out their voters. Right now, the expectations, if you look at polling, is that Warnock will win. Does that mean that some Democrats don't vote because they're feeling confident and then help Walker? Unclear. A reminder that right now the Senate is 50-50, but it because Democrats control the White House, that means Democrats have already won a majority in the Senate. This would be a 51st seat, uh, which would actually help the Democrats get things through, potentially get over the filibuster if they can find an extra vote. Uh, But it will, again, be interesting to see where the voter enthusiasm lies in these final days ahead of the Georgia runoff. And by the way, this is uh, like pretty much the umpteenth Georgia runoff in the past couple of years. Georgians have to keep voting and voting. Uh, Relief for you guys, though, down in Georgia on December 7th. You won't have to look at campaign ads, at least for a few months. (laughs) From NBC News, an update now on the gruesome murder of four University of Idaho students earlier this month. A lot of confusing statements this week. On Wednesday, a statement came out that detectives do not currently know if the residents or any occupants were specifically targeted, but continue to investigate. That was a contradiction to what police had been saying from the beginning, that they did in fact believe the attack was targeted. And then on Thursday, a police spokesperson tried to clear up the issue again, saying, quote, we remain consistent in our belief that this was indeed a targeted attack, but have not concluded if the target was the residents 
or the occupants. So it was targeted, but could it have been the red? I don't understand that at all. Like, yeah, like they, so they were was, targeting the specific house. Like the bit, like they needed to kill someone in the building. I, I, I I'm very confused. Um, police now say the original statement was a quote miscommunication. And just to back up again, it's been nearly three weeks now since those four students were found fatally stabbed at an off-campus home in Moscow, and these killings remain a total mystery. There's a lot of frustration, Jill, in this uh, community from the victims' relatives. Uh, you know, there's been a lack of information, and then the information that is released uh, continually changes. Uh, the Idaho Statesman has been doing some great reporting on this. This is the main newspaper out of Boise. Right now, what we understand is that the autopsies have confirmed that all four of the students died from multiple stab wounds, that they were all likely asleep when the attacks started. Some victims did show defensive wounds, meaning they were trying to fight off the attacker. Local, state, and federal officials are all on the case right now. They're trying to determine who's responsible, uh, what the full story is. They've already done, uh, according to police, 150 interviews, and they've received more than 1,000 tips. But no suspect has been identified. The murder weapon, which is believed to be a knife, has not been found. And authorities say they still haven't ruled out the possibility that it was one person or more than one person involved in the stabbings. Obviously, there's a question as to, like, who they were targeting or what they were targeting. They have tried to assuage concerns in the community that uh, there's no uh, continuing threat. But then some people are saying, well, if it wasn't targeted, like you say, does that mean I you know, should be really worried at night? So right now, as far as at least the campus is concerned, some students have uh, been opting to finish the semester remotely and not return to campus because of this ongoing fear. I was watching a report from the scene uh, from Moscow, and the reporter was saying that so many of the students have decided not to return to campus and to finish those classes remotely. And you know what? I get it, right? If the, if the police yeah. are not giving real information or, or all these confusing statements, you don't know if there's a serial killer on the loose or what's going on. Um, I could just imagine that's so eerie. Yeah, and it just like all the various stories. I mean, it reminds me in a different way of what was going on in Uvalde, Texas, you know, kind of small town police department. Um, a lot of questions about their conduct, in this case, the investigation. Though I do feel for the folks and you know, they've gotten the feds involved, the FBI's involved. So Somebody needs to intervene here on a federal level and take charge of this investigation at a minimum, take charge of communication. All right. And from NPR, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern fired back at a reporter's suggestion that she met with Finland Prime Minister Sanna Marin just because of their similarities like age and gender. The comment came at a joint press conference on Wednesday, which was held to highlight Marin's diplomatic visit to Auckland. The two leaders are expected to discuss trade relations and Ukraine support. Let's play it. A lot of people will be wondering, are you two meeting just because, you know, you're similar in age and, you know, got a lot of, you know, common stuff there, you know, when you got into politics and stuff? Or can Kiwis actually expect to see more deals so between our two countries down the line? Because my there first, is I mean, My first question is, I wonder whether or not anyone ever asked Barack Obama and John Key if they met because they mm. were of similar age. Uh, we, of course, uh, have uh, a higher proportion of men in politics. It, it's reality. Because two women meet, it's not simply because of the agenda. Yeah, we are meeting because we are prime ministers. I mean, a well-done response to a, a pretty misogynistic question. Yeah, you know, th- this this clip has gone viral online. Um, and these two have received their share of, you could say, pretty unfair criticism and scrutiny. Uh, first, we should note that uh, Sana Marin from Finland, she's 37. 
Uh, Ardern of New Zealand is 42. When Ardern first became prime minister, Jill, back in 2017, reporters were focused on questioning her on whether she intended to have children or take maternity leave. Uh, after her pregnancy was announced, a reporter actually focused on her appearance and asked when her baby was conceived. Uh, she actually, uh, a bunch of people there were calling that creepy, that line of questioning. Marin, for her part, we reported on this earlier this summer, was heavily criticized uh, when videos emerged over the summer of her partying with friends at a private event. Uh, critics, some within her own party, but uh, across the board, described her conduct as unprofessional, but others rallied to her defense, uh, You know, even putting out these viral dancing videos, being like, do you criticize older male politicians for playing golf? Why can't she be partying and uh, having a, a drink with friends? Jill, this all comes as uh, women leaders continue to remain pretty un underrepresented across the board globally. Just 28 countries are represented by female leaders right now, according to the latest UN figures. Uh, that's out of almost 200 countries. Look, no matter how much progress women have made, and, and we have made a ton of progress, there is still a double standard. Serena Williams talked about this when she was retiring and she put out that post, I believe it was on Instagram. And she said, look, I want to keep playing, but if I want to have, she's, you know, in other words, I want to keep playing, but if I want to have another kid, I can't. And that is not, you know, she couldn't get pregnant and continue playing. And she's like, that wasn't a decision that men players have to make. They could just keep playing until they, their body gives up on them. Totally. This is a conversation I had over the summer. There's a, a podcast you could pull up uh, from September, early September, that I did with NBC correspondent Ali Vitali. Uh, she wrote a book called Electable, uh, looking at why we haven't had a woman president here in the U.S. And just the media scrutiny that women leaders tend to face and the more difficult challenges they have, sometimes even, Jill, from female correspondents, from other women. And it'll be very, you know, notable to watch, you know, as Kamala Harris continues being, uh, you know, serving as vice president and in this next election, uh, how we go about electing the first female leader in 246 years of American history uh, in the coming years. It's so interesting that you say that, and I don't want to go too much on a tangent on this, but that you say that about women being some of the toughest critics to other women. In my career, I've there have been plenty of women who have been mentors to me and who have been invaluable. Uh, and, and I really have so appreciated everything they've done. And it's, it's incredibly important that said, Mosh, there were, and I'm only speaking about myself, but there were some women who had put up obstacles for me. Um, and, and in particular, when I came back from maternity leave and so we can be our own worst enemies. Yeah. I, I found it notable. Uh, there's a section of Katie Couric's uh, recent book where she talks about regretting uh, some of the ways that she made life difficult for other younger women as they were coming up as a, at NBC, and it was a cultural thing. So, I, you know, it's something I discussed with the Julia, uh, my podcast recently with, with Julia Borston, with Ali Vitale, and definitely something we, you know, need to continue to discuss here. But good for uh, Jacinda Ardern and, and Sana Marin uh, for, for calling out that reporter. Jill, on another podcast, I'll talk about my three months in Finland back in 2007 on the Journalism <laughs> Fellowship. <laughs> Okay, Jill, let's end things here with this story from Variety. Recognize that tune? Harrison Ford, now 80 years old, is back again as Indiana Jones for the final time. Disney revealed the first trailer for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny this week. That is the official title for what is now the fifth installment of Harrison Ford's franchise. The first one, Jill, came out back in 1981, the last one in 89. So it's been a while since he's put one of these out. So Harrison Ford is now 80, back as Indiana Jones. The soundtrack on the film 
comes to us from 90-year-old composer John Williams, the legend. He's back again doing a remix of some of his greatest, uh, latest and greatest. You know, we love that iconic theme song. The film right now is scheduled for release uh, next June. You know what it is? It's like with men, it almost feels like, again, it's just this double standard where they get better looking and more distinguished with age. And with women, it's still, I think this, uh, unfortunately, this double standard. I couldn't see an 80-year-old woman playing the heroine in a movie. Yeah, yeah, it's actually interesting. I didn't even think as we were stacking this, stacking is a term for the story order here, as we were stacking this (laughs) podcast, I didn't even think about that as we did the uh, prime minister story and then this story. But it is a really remarkable contrast, right? These uh, young female leaders getting uh, undue scrutiny uh, just for their gender. And over here, we're uh, Harrison Ford, 80 years old, back as an action hero. I think you make a, a pretty good point there. That said, I'm still kind of excited to see see the film. <laughs> I grew up uh, obsessed with The Last Crusade. Love that film growing up. All right, now for what we are watching, reading, and eating this weekend. I think we are all going to be watching World Cup soccer. The U.S. plays the Netherlands Saturday at 10 a.m. Eastern. It's going to be on Fox. Yeah, the big question to be looking out for later today is whether the U.S. star Christian Pulisic, he scored the one and only goal in the game against Iran but then got injured, to see whether he is on the mend enough to be able to play in tomorrow's match. Uh, He suffered what's called a pelvic contusion when he collided with Iran's goalie. He's been game. I've seen some Snapchat posts, uh, Jill, that he is eager to play. Uh, The question is whether the doctors will let him play. But uh, that is a huge game uh, to be watching. But based on the ratings for that U.S.-Iran game on Tuesday, I can imagine, given it's a weekend tomorrow, that a lot of America will be watching that, waking up uh, to watch that game. Uh, For those of you on the West Coast, it'll be at 7 a.m. I loved that New Yorker cartoon that you posted on your Instagram feed, it, which was just so funny. It was like the somebody decked out head to toe in like an American flag, red, white, and blue on the couch cheering for soccer. And the other person was like, you know, you've only watched one game, right? Because <laughs> that's basically <laughs> all of us wagon. right now. The bandwagon. Uh, yeah. I mean, how many of us are watching MLS games? More props to those of you who play in MLS or big soccer fans. But yeah, this is kind of the once in a four year thing where inevitably we'll also all in the media do the story. Is this the time that America changes on soccer and soccer, you know, starts to get closer to baseball and football? Um, But I I will say I have watched games in the past, but I just thought it was a a cute cartoon. And it did sort of match what was happening in in my apartment on Tuesday as my wife was like, (laughs) why are you shouting at the at the screen? I'm like, man, we're playing against Iran and look at Christian Pulisic. And she's like, where have you been? (laughs) Uh, Mosh, what are you reading this weekend? Jill, I'm sort of nerding out right now on uh, the business story, the Disney story we've been covering this week, Bob Iger's big return. The Wall Street Journal has a story out on how he's effectively risking his legacy, his 15-year legacy, to come back and fix the one thing he really screwed up at Disney, which was the succession to Bob Chapek. So uh, I'll link to that in the show notes. But it it is fascinating to see a 71-year-old Bob Iger return And they've basically brought him back to uh, fix the one thing he wasn't very good at at Disney. So it's an interesting little uh, story there. Yeah, because he's only really there for two years. That's how long his contract is. So you've pretty much at this moment have to already be thinking about your successor. Um, I am going to be reading an essay from Barry Weiss's platform, Common Sense. It's from a freelance reporter who is currently on the ground in China and has been there for about a decade. It's called, It is the First Time I've Seen This in China, of course, about all these protests. Uh, On the ground in Shanghai, where young people born after the Tiananmen Square massacre are fed up and fighting back against the CCP. 
You know, it's interesting, Jill. I was uh, reading some coverage uh, on China this week, a lot of coverage, and uh, some people were talking about that the Chinese government has done such a good job at censorship that there are so many people in China who are like, yeah, I've heard that Tiananmen Square was famous, uh, but like, why is it famous? Like, that like literally they have been able to block the protests of 1989 out of the education system. And so there are tens, if not hundreds of millions of Chinese people who are like literally no understanding unless you were in Tiananmen Square that day, uh, wow. 30 plus years ago. It, it really has this sort of Ray Bradbury quality to it. On that issue of censorship and speaking of the World Cup, if you watch, um, if you watch the World Cup in China, they've actually censored out any pictures of the fans because they're not wearing masks. So I yeah. guess they don't want the Chinese people who are watching the World Cup to realize that basically everywhere else, we're in like kind of a post-pandemic world right now. Um, it's just fascinating, those those specific examples of what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, listen, they, they call it the Great Firewall of China. Uh, but what has been wild this week to watch is all these videos and images getting out uh, through through the use of VPNs, you know, the Chinese people uh, who are out there protesting, very savvy in getting some of these elements out there. All right, I'm going to be eating, or shall I say downing, uh, kettle corn popcorn, which has been my new thing. It's It makes me feel like it's somewhat healthy because it's, you know, just popcorn, but it's smothered in sugar. <laughs> so I've been loving it. Jill, on the popcorn front, um, I know that I've mentioned these guys before, but there's uh, this lesser evil Himalayan salt and Himalayan sweetness uh, popcorn that we're obsessed with in this house. And uh, I'm downing bags of that lately. Uh, for the record, Moshe and I have been trying to keep this podcast down in terms of duration, but we just are so chatty. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's hard, right? <laughs> we actually have a debate. Let us know over at podcast at mo.news. Email us uh, how you feel about if you've gotten to this point, you probably don't mind the long podcast, but <laughs> we're trying to get this under 30 minutes. Yes, I feel strongly that this should, that the podcast should be a little bit shorter because it's a daily thing and I am very cognizant that people don't have that much time. Yeah, um, Mosh is just such a news junkie that he's like, the more stories, the better. Yeah, if the if the podcast ever runs over 30 minutes, it's typically my fault for adding stories. I'm like, Jill, we haven't mentioned this. And they're like, Moshe, if you mention all the news, the podcast would be six hours long. We got to take a break. And with that, Jill, we'll try to cut this. We'll cut this conversation short here by my standards. And thank everyone for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast for another great week of news. Yep. Subscribe, follow us so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. And don't forget to follow Moshe himself on Instagram at Moshe, M-O-S-H-E-H. We'll see everyone next week. Bye. Bye.